Hello, and welcome to a very exciting episode. I am joined by Dr. Stephanie Greenspan, who, those of you who read poll research, which I know, I know some of y'all do, may already be familiar with. But for folks who aren't, do you want to start off by introducing yourself, a little bit of background about who you are and what you do, and then we'll, we'll jump into talking about research a little bit. Sure. Thanks. So my name is Stephanie Greenspan. I'm a, a physical therapist who also has a background as a dancer and an aerialist. And I do quite a bit of research in the area of injuries and then also motion capture around aerial arts. My journey around the, the research sort of started when as a physical therapist and a coach, I got asked to do injury prevention workshops for initially it was sort of pre-professional programs. And so doing my due diligence, I went in the literature and looked at like what was out there on injuries in circus. And there was at that time when I was looking maybe one or two studies and not in populations that match the ones that I was working with. And as far as injury prevention, which is a different thing, you know, one is knowing what the injuries are. The other is what are strategies that, that actually changes someone's injuries risk for having an injury. And that there was absolutely nothing on. So that kind of spawned me to thinking about trying to do some data collection and looking at what were, what, what were injuries happening? Cause what, what wasn't out there that I was particularly interested in was what's the difference between disciplines. We have so many different disciplines in the circus arts and there are very different stresses on their body. You know, as an aerialist, you're doing a lot of pulling motions, whereas someone who's tumbling is going to do a lot more weight bearing and impact forces through their joints. And one would imagine that they're going to have different types of injuries based on those stresses on their bodies. So that was really my question and it wasn't answered in anything that was out there. So I started, started looking on a small scale. So pilot study just at one circus studio and realized quickly because there's so many different disciplines. And I was really just trying at that time to differentiate between aerial and ground and that you needed way more people <laughs> to answer that question. And so, so that pilot study led into a multi-center study, which was the one that was recently published that happened at 10 different training centers across the U.S. And we had just over 200 people enroll in the study. So that was my journey as far as the, the injury research. And I'm a clinical practitioner, so I work with circus artists and dancers. And so it's a nice integration back and forth of using what I learned from my research to inform my practice and using my practice to inform my research. Huh. That's that's music to my ears. <laughs> Certainly. Perhaps perhaps folks who are familiar with the name of the podcast will not be surprised to hear this either. That's presumably most of the people listening. Yeah. So one thing that you mentioned there is injury prevention. And there's been on social media some discussion recently about the fact that you can't prevent injuries. And I think I think what folks are getting at is that you can't prevent a hundred percent of injuries and that you know, if you do get injured, it's not necessarily like your fault or something you did. Like there's some degree of risk. So there's going to be some degree of injury. But given that this is a core area of your research, I think you would probably argue that some degree of injury prevention is in fact possible. And that's why it's worthy of study, question mark. Right. So, so in order to figure out what might, and I like to use the term injury risk, right? Mm -hmm. 
for that reason, right? We, we, we cannot totally predict who is going to get injured, even if they have all the same injury risk factors. And so we have to look at what we call intrinsic factors. So things about the human. So what's their flexibility like? What's their health like? What's their skill level? All these things that are about just the actual individual. And then there's a host of environmental things like their workload, their coaching, the demands of the movement that they're participating in, all these other external factors that intersect in order to create injury risk. But someone can have all the same factors and have the same exposure to something that could potentially cause an injury and one person might get injured and another may not. And that's that's why people <laughs> come from the research background, you know, like to say, like, we can't actually predict injury, right? Mm -hmm. So we can, we can talk about who might be at higher risk mm -hmm. uh, and that's what we're trying to look for. And so when we're looking at strategies to decrease someone's chance of getting injured and trying to lower the risk or trying to mitigate the factors that are changeable because not everything is. So, but we, we actually have almost nothing in the way of research on injury prevention. So anytime you're going to a workshop and I'd have to look into full research recently, but I don't think there's much there either. And we go to an injury prevention workshop it's not based on what we know from actually circus. Um, it's based on sports, right? And so, you know, people are using the best knowledge they have of what's working for people in sports that maybe are doing something similar and things that we've learned from them. So take, you know, a tumbling type acrobat and ACL injury might be a risk factor. And that's probably one of the best researched injuries as far as strategies to reduce risk. And so they might implement things that come out of soccer as far as neuro, neuro re-education techniques. So looking at how people are moving and landing, especially, and implement those into training to try to decrease that kind of injury. But when it comes to the injuries that we're having in circus, we don't have anything specifically done in that population that tells us what's going to lower our risk. So we're depending on different individuals, different activities to, to try to inform our best way. And, and that's really disappointing. And so obviously we're trying to change that, but we can't figure that out until we know exactly what's happening in the circus. And so that's, where breaking it out in, because we're such a broad group of disciplines that do very different things. And we also have all different levels. We have people that are doing circus in as physical education in school. We have people doing it for fitness. We have, and then we have professionals also like in the U S many of our professionals are freelance. So they might have another job. They're training on top of that. Maybe they're coaching on top of that and they're doing, you know, a, a few gigs a week or a few gigs a month versus someone who's in a big company who might be doing eight to 10 shows in a week and doing that every week. So all of those things are very different environments, different workloads might be doing very different skills. So it's, it's very complicated in circus, but also fascinating to, to look at. So we, we really need a better understanding of our injuries before we can start figuring out preventative strategies. And probably one of the, the first studies coming out looking at prevention was the studies looking at Achilles tendon injuries. And they did a study in Cirque du Soleil looking at 
calf endurance training as a preventative strategy, which didn't pan out and really prevent injuries. People felt better, but that was one of the first studies that we had actually looking at strategies to decrease injury risk. So we, we have a lot of work to do, but the exciting thing is we have a lot of people now interested in working on things. And I think I honestly, pole is ahead of the game. It's a little easier because it's, it's a more similar, you know, it's one activity, one discipline, but there's, there's been a lot coming on both looking at injuries and different subsets of pole dancers. So I think you will probably get there as, as a group before, before all of circus for sure. Yeah. Very heterogeneous population. There's a lot of a variation in, in circus. And I mean, there is some in pole. I'm thinking about things like people who pretend to prefer low flow. It's going to have more acrobatic elements, maybe more flips. Whereas people who prefer, you know, just like rolling around on the floor and have different stresses on their body. But yeah. So you mentioned the original distinction you were thinking about was ground-based versus aerial athletes. And for those of you who have, have taken a look at the study or, or who follow you on Instagram, it's athletic science. I believe yes. it'll be in the show notes. <laughs> One of the things I noticed is that you categorize pole as aerial with ground elements. So do you want to talk a little bit about that categorization? Sure. Yeah. How that actually came about is when I s- submitted my paper on the pilot study, I got kind of hammered for including Chinese pole as an aerial apparatus. And mm-hmm. I actually, my, my entry into circus came through pole. And so I went from pole to silks. And so to me, like the movement was very similar. I was inverting, I was climbing, I was pulling. And so, but they had a very, they had a very different frame of reference. So at the national circuit school in Canada, the librarian had done a different categorization of disciplines that wasn't for the same intent, but consider pull a ground apparatus which really confused me. (laughs) And so in talking to some of the Chinese pole acrobats and coaches, I started to see, you know, there, there are a lot more impact factors. There is more groundwork. There's more impact on the apparatus than you would have in other aerial. And so that's why we created the category of aerial with ground elements. So that would include Chinese pole, it would include dance pole. It, It also potentially could include things like high bar, which you'll see in some search shows where they're, you know, they're coming off and they're landing, jumping and flipping and landing on the ground. And so there's more ground involvement. And so we thought there's some unique stressors with that. So we, we made that subcategory, but you also brought up a, a great point earlier of, you know, it also, there's also a deeper layer, which becomes harder and harder. The more you break things apart, the harder it is to get enough numbers of people and exposure to, to be able to show patterns. But, you know, the same person can, can train and perform on the same apparatus and have a very different aesthetic. You know, someone can be very flexibility based and do a lot of things that use lots of flexibility. And you can have someone else who uses a lot of dynamic movement and they're going to have some different stressors on the same apparatus. So you could, dig even deeper into these things. But when you, when you break things apart too much, you can't really analyze it. So that's where we sort of landed with these groupings. And sometimes, you know, groupings might have to get collapsed into more aerial and just ground as well, depending on, you know, on future studies, because this was also published as part of a consensus statement that we published last year. So a group of injury researchers and circus 
came together because everybody was doing the injury research in different ways. So what we called, you know, even what we defined as an injury might be different. One person might be defining injury only as the people that went to a medical professional to, to get evaluated. So in a medical attention injury, but we know a lot of people manage their own stuff and they don't, you know, either because they don't have access to healthcare, which is a whole different issue, or they don't trust healthcare providers, another issue, you know, or they feel like they can manage it. You know, it's still impacting how they participate. They might not be able to um, do all of their disciplines. They might have to be modifying their movement, but maybe they haven't gone to medical providers. So in the, the recent study that I published, that was still considered an, an injury. So we, and then the other way it might get defined as injuries as time loss. So some studies will only count the injuries where you actually fully did not participate in the activity for at least a day. So if you're comparing studies that do those use different measure, measures, the numbers might look different just because the defi injury definitions are different. So that's why it's one of the things that Melanie Stuckey and I are doing, my co-author on the paper, because we know that even if people do go, which hopefully they do go read the paper, it's dense. <laughs> And they might not understand all the terminologies. So, you know, it's taken us a long time to understand all the terminology well. And so we're trying to do a lot of knowledge translation right now on social media of breaking down the different parts of the study and the findings and making sure people also don't sort of over, not overreact, but over extrapolate what's, what, what differences mean. So, you know, and I think with the injury rates <laughs> that's happening a little bit, you know, you have to like put it into the context, you know, the injury rates are how many injuries per thousand sessions of training or performance in a discipline. And so it might you know, to have a thousand, you know, if you look at the average exposures now, we do have a factor of that COVID affected our study. So there probably would have been more exposure. So that was an unfortunate event for many reasons, but one of which is it impacted the training of people in the study. But if you look at how much, how many sessions people had on average, you know, it would take them two years to get to that thousand exposed thousand sessions of exposure. And, and so, you know, if you're looking at one group of disciplines, you know, a, a difference of maybe two injuries per thousand exposures, you know, how big of a difference is that? And, and that's kind of, it's hard to answer, you know, and that's, that's one thing that's not clear from epidemiology research. What we might want to take away is that we need to maybe prioritize some of those things. And we were actually surprised at that finding because in a lot of other research, if you look at gymnastics research, which is probably the most similar thing when we compare circus, you know, because they have some things that are similar to aerial and, and obviously ground. And most studies so far have found, especially tumbling, that type of ground acrobatics had a higher injury rate. So that's what we expected to find too. So we're a little surprised that actually in our study, both aerial groups had a higher injury rate than others. So but we always have to remember that was in people in the U.S. That was in pre-professional and professional. So it might be different in recreational. It might be different in a different country. So that's why we need more research to look at all these different types of populations. But hope what we're hopeful for is that if people start following the methodology from the consensus, it'll be much easier to compare because we'll be using the same injury definitions. We'll be using the same way to calculate 
injury rates. And then it's a lot more meaningful when we compare studies because um, it's really hard to do that right now. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, thinking forward, I don't know, five, 10 years, being able to do meta studies where it's like, okay, we're pretty sure this is a thing when we're looking at all these studies and they're measuring the same things in the same way. We talked a lot about survey instruments in the episode with Ginger, if y'all haven't listened to that, who's a public health researcher. And we also talked a little bit about statistical power. So I think some of those themes are are similar. And if you would like some background listening <laughs> to, to tie in with this one, I think that would be a good episode. Yeah. So you, you mentioned injury rates and I, I have also seen that going around Instagram and I can actually pull up the numbers if you don't have them in front of you, but you did find, you know, some incidents of injury and of the apparatuses, aerial with ground elements had the highest rate. And I want to say it was either like four or six. So per yeah, thousand it was, close to, it was close to six. Yeah. So, so usually injury rates are calculated in one and two ways. It's either by athletic exposures in sport or hours. And so it, it was actually kind of funny in the pilot study, we tried to calculate hours by discipline and it drove people the study a bit crazy because most people go and if they're training, they do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you know, they're warming up for, for all of it together and trying to keep track of how much time they were doing each discipline was really, really difficult. And so, but we, we wanted that because we wanted to figure out, you know, what's the difference. And most of sport is done in hours, but it's all the same thing. How many hours did you play soccer? And so that was a a big dilemma when we, when we created the consensus or the extension statement from the international Olympic committee consensus, which was for sport. And so we felt it really important to differentiate by discipline. And so using sessions, it's easy to count, like how many times did I train today and train that discipline, right? That's a lot simpler. Or how many times did I perform in that discipline in a day or in a week? So it made it a lot more accessible for people to record what we didn't do, which ideally in the future people will is at least count the total circus exposure. So that way, not between each individual discipline, but in total, and that would allow us to better compare to other sport to see like, okay, this number seems high, but how does that compare to other, you know, active activities? Is it higher than them? Is it lower than them? Other studies that have looked at injury rate and circus typically found, at least from gymnastics, that we we're lower. But again, sometimes the injury definition or how they were calculating exposure was a little bit different. So it was hard to compare. So so doing both of those things will allow us to compare to other sports and activities. And because there is also an impression from those that I don't participate that these activities we do are super dangerous. Right. And, and because sometimes there are big accidents that happen, they're rare, thankfully, and, and, but they make headlines in, in the press. Right. So that's what people hear about. But the reality is most of our injuries in circus are like overuse, repetitive type injuries that happen. So yes, we get injured. We want to get injured less, but we're also not dangerous. So that that's also an important message, you know, for, for parents that are afraid to put their kids into circus activities for one or insurance companies being afraid to insure our facilities. So that's another reason all this stuff is important to, to have out there. 
I, I just renewed my insurance and I remember trying to find someone who would insure an online pool instructor was a struggle. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. challenging. A lot of brokers were just like, absolutely not, get out of here. So I think having some normative data would be super helpful to lots of folks in pool. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's actually where, when I started having these questions, I was like, well, they must know from like at least insurance recording and, and what most facilities do is they have injury reports or incident reports, but there's a lot of injuries that happen that, that are minor, that nobody ever bothers recording or that maybe they are a little more significant, but they still don't get reported to the instructor or to the administrator there. So they're not, not as accurate, but I think, yeah, it will help, help realize, help, you know, people realize that we're not so dangerous, but, but the impacts of being injured, you know, for someone who's recreational, it's still really important. You know, people are passionate about this and just like you would never tell a runner to stop running. If you ever want them to talk to you again, right. You should never tell a circus artist to stop doing circus unless they absolutely have to, to get better. And so we have a lot of education to do in with healthcare professionals, but until we have better research and better data to speak from, it's, it's hard to get them to listen. Yeah. Yeah, that is definitely a challenge. So you talked about some of the like potential applications of this research, you know, both educating medical providers, talking to, you know, people who might be concerned about the level of risk and want some more data about that, which I think is very understandable. You talked about insurance companies, right? If you had any, you know, things that you would want to point out or maybe would really want pole dancers in particular to, to know about and to think about whether they're teachers or students or just people who dance for fun and do not have an educational relationship to anybody, what are some things that you would, you would want them to take away from the study, given that it is a very dense study, like you've mentioned, you had 200 <laughs> participants. I think it's, it was like a year-long like survey study, so a lot of data on um, a lot of people. It was not a survey not? study. I'm going to just clarify that because that, that is a big difference. There, there was a survey component to it, but when I think of survey study, I think of something that the only interaction with the participants is through survey. Mm. So every participant in this study went through an extensive physical exam when they started. It would have been more expensive if if we had time, but we spent an hour and we looked at a lot of stuff. We looked at flexibility, strength, joint range of motion with a focus on the shoulder, hip, and spine. And we did some sort of functional balance testing and other measures like that. The reason we did that was twofold. One, we have very little information out there on what norms are in circus bodies. So healthcare practitioners don't know what's normal in a circus body. And when we try to return someone to activity, you know, often there's return to sport protocols and, and sort of is sort of markers or standards that you want people to meet before they go back. And we don't have anything like that in circus. So the hope was to, to have some of that, and that will be the next paper coming out. We'll have all that information. And so, but the other reason we wanted to look at that was to see, is there a connection between someone that is hypermobile? Is there a connection between someone who's weak in their shoulders and their injury risk? Is there someone connection between someone who's stiff and their injury risk? We didn't actually find that. Now, I th- that doesn't mean it's not true at all. I think we might need bigger numbers to really show that and, and looking at specific type of injury with a specific physical profile. 
it was just hard to do that with all the data we were managing. So we looked at overall injury risk and these different physical characteristics. But it's important to think about because when we go to injury prevention workshops, 90% of the time, what we're doing is addressing those deficits as a way to decrease injury risk. And we actually don't know that it does. So it's something to be cautious. It probably does improve performance and it may help someone lessen their injury risk, but we don't have anything out there in circus to show that. And we actually showed it didn't change their injury risk. So, so we want to be cautious focusing just on that because like I talked about those extrinsic and intrinsic risk factors, there's a lot of other stuff that creates injury risk beyond what someone's physical status is that we have to consider workloads, a huge one. And we know it's definitely some things from sport where a spike in workload, you're, you know, you train two hours, three days a week, and then you go to this awesome whole, you know, retreat where you're doing eight hours, you know, for two days, those sorts of things increase someone's injury risk. Right. So, so just a word of caution when thinking about that within and, and calling that injury prevention as well. Oh, so anyway, so we didn't find that from that, but, and we will have some norms to establish to help people from a clinical standpoint. But then the other pieces, all of our injuries were evaluated by a physical therapist. So often with the injury studies, and there's lots out there, certainly in poll, where you survey people, they tell you what injuries they've had in the last six months, how much they train. Oftentimes people, you know, they're not medical professionals. They haven't evaluated their body. So they, there's some accuracy issues with reporting injuries like that. So in this case, when we evaluate by a medical provider, we can be really specific about what part of the body is affected, what tissue, is it a muscle, is it a ligament, is it a nerve that's affected, and and get into the history of how it happened to understand was there a trauma, was it a repetitive use, what was the discipline that was associated. So it allowed us to get a lot more depth around the injury and hopefully more accuracy by doing it that way. And then the survey part was people tracking their training. So that was survey that they filled out every week which was a lot. So if you know someone in the study, tell them, thank you. Cause it was a lot of, a lot of work for 52 weeks to fill that out. And when the pandemic happened, it was also kind of hard because when people weren't at their same training and had to fill out this log and they weren't doing their same stuff emotionally, that sometimes was hard for people, but they hung in there. Thankfully. And we, we saw some actually interesting patterns that I've talked about before, about what happened to people's training because all sorts of different things happened. So, so, so those are some of the differences between a survey type study. So that's also something to consider if you're looking at research is like, how was it done? Was it what people thought was wrong with them versus something was evaluated by a medical provider? Yeah, definitely. So perhaps even more data associated with the study than I originally gave the, the impression of. Yeah, I think the particularly the spike in, in activity is a really good thing to, to think about. And I think about, you know, people prepping for competitions or performance, you know, you want to you know, work with your coach, work with your teacher, you want to ease in, <laughs> you want to do like a little bit of at a time as you're ramping up and not just immediately go zero to 10, which I think is absolutely anecdotally, not from the study, you know, another thing we see is when people are trying to get that new skill, right. And they drill it, they practice it for an hour, you know, and then they're doing the same thing to their body over and over and over again. So you see that 
you also see it when people are just preparing for a show because they're doing that same stuff all the time and the, the breadth of what they're doing is not their usual training. So those, those sorts of things sometimes anecdotally seem to be injury patterns from a clinical standpoint that I see. Um, and, and drilling a skill over and over, is not the best for motor learning, either, right? So you actually you'd learn better if you mix it up. And if you practice that skill a little bit, do some other stuff and come back to it, you're going to do better with learning it. So another reason not to do that. Yes. Variation. <laughs> Very important. I think something that people I think will find probably a little bit heartening is that you mentioned that there wasn't like a predictive effect of being hypermobile on injury rates in this study with this population, given that this is not going to be a universal understanding of how circus injuries work. And I know you've, you've done some research on, on helping people manage hypermobility in this space before. Do you have any, you know, things that you would want to share or that you wish more people knew about that? Yeah. Yeah. That could be a whole nother talk, but, and I actually just got packed from a course on Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorder. So it's fresh in my brain, but yeah. So in our particular study, having generalized joint hypermobility, according to the Byton scale, was not predictive of a higher injury risk. And I would say out there, like in sport, there's been a couple meta-analyses. It's also a little bit mixed in, in some cases for particular types of injuries. It's been shown that people have a higher injury risk and in other, other populations and other types of injuries, not so much. So, so it's not clear cut. And one thing that I, I love to tell people especially people that do have EDS or HSD is that exercise is protective. And so a lot of people get told not to do certain things. And there are things that are more stressful on joints for sure. And that's a consideration, but it's so important for that population to be strong and to be able to protect their joints. It has to be done thoughtfully, but exercise is protective and it's so important that they're physically active and doing things and and so often when I get together with other providers that work with people in EDS, the people I work with are a lot, uh, lot functioning much better in life. And part of that is because they are so active and they're managing their stuff. And again, a small proportion of people that are hypermobile actually have EDS. So not everybody does. And EDS is a connective tissue disorder and, and affects many other systems, probably all of your systems in your body, because we have connective tissues everywhere. So it can have many other effects beyond just your joints. But it, it's important for people to be thoughtful about exercise and what they choose to do, but but not not to be afraid of it and not to avoid it because in the long run, they're going to be better off if they're moving and doing activity. So that said, there is a very high prevalence of pain. So probably 90% of people with hypermobile EDS, again, this isn't just generalized joint hypermobility, have chronic pain, but it's not just musculoskeletal in nature. So it's not just because of your joints. It can be from gastrointestinal disorders. It can be from mast cell activation syndrome. There can be lots of other reasons that they might be having pain symptoms beyond injury or joint subluxations. So it's, it's a lot more complex than that. And I think that's, that's probably a reason we expect people with hypermobility to have more problems because they do have more pain, but it's not always because of musculoskeletal injury. Uh, so I think, I think pole dancers will be delighted to hear, particularly my, my hypermobile friends that 
It's good for you. <laughs> I don't want to keep you too far past our allotted time because I know you are very busy, but is there anything that you would like to plug or, you know, you mentioned that you're a practicing physical therapist. So if people perhaps want to try and get on your schedule, I don't know if you have openings, but how could people find out more, reach out to you, anything you'd like to share? And also I will have a link to the study below, but if you want to talk a little bit about where people can find that as well. Yeah. So, so thankfully both the the consensus paper, which is the extension paper on research methodology. So, so if someone is interested in doing their own research, we really would love to talk to those people. And I'm talking on behalf of the people that we ca called ourselves the CERC group surveillance of injuries and for research in circus. So, you know, that's a group of professionals that got together and, and, and put this together. And we really want to help people do research with this methodology so we can strengthen our, our, our pool of data and better understand injuries across all, all disciplines and circus around the world. So if, if someone's interested, the paper's a great, great place to start, but don't hesitate to reach out to any, anybody who is on the group for, for guidance and, and understanding. Cause if, I mean, the injury paper is dense, that paper is even, even more, it's very technical. So we want people to understand it and it to be accessible. But our hope from that too is, is eventually to have some sort of injury database. So if you look at the NCAA, for example, they collect injuries on athletes in, in, in college sports, right? And so we would love to have something where people could drop in information from all over the world about what injuries are happening. And it would have to be more in a well, potentially in a survey format or potentially from healthcare facilities if affiliated with circus facilities. You don't have much of that in the US, but they do have it elsewhere. And and to to create an injury database and just really strengthen that way and then have have research people access that database and and put things out from there. So that's a big hope from that. So certainly if people are interested in research, reach out to any of us and then all of these studies are open access, which means you don't have to be at a university, you know, with have access to a library that has a subscription. It's freely accessible to everyone, which we're trying to do as much as possible. But a lot of times journals cost charge, you know, a couple thousand dollars to do that. So I was lucky to have support from the university. I, I work for Samuel Merritt University that also funded this research so that we could publish open access for both of these papers. So and they're both, there's a link to them both on my website under my research stuff. So that's athleticscience.com. Clinically, I practice in the Bay Area. So it's just because I spend a fair amount of time on research. I don't, I'm not full-time in practice, but I do, and it can consult out of state. I can't treat injuries out of state just because of licensure, but always happy to connect people to, I want people to get good care. So I'm always also happy to get people connected with someone in their area too. Fabulous. And there will be links to a lot of stuff in the show notes. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Greenspan. This has been a very interesting conversation and the, the study is open access. So folks want to pour over it. We can do that at our leisure. And I hope some folks will. And thank you to everybody else for tuning in and listening. And I will talk with you very soon. Bye. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks you for being here. <laughs>